0: I'd like to talk to you this morning about when less is more. kind of, kind of a one, You know one of those cute phrases that we kind of throw around and we think, oh, isn't that, isn't that a neat idea? I, I'm not sure how many of us really believe it, though, and want to live by this idea of less is more. Maybe some of you do. That's not where I naturally go. As I got to thinking about that, I, I began to think back to my old days when I was selling real estate some years ago, and I thought the best thing I could do to get us thinking in that direction was to offer you a house. You can buy it this after the service is over. I'll give you a real discount because you're here today, and uh, you'll get another house to live in, in fact, a brand-new house. It, it is called uh, the Alpha Tiny House. Yeah, yeah, it's 240 square feet. Yeah, and in fact, don't, don't dismay, because it comes with a built-in uh, jacuzzi and, and tub for you to use, And in fact, if you go into the kitchen area and you look under the floor, you'll find that there's stored there a table for eight people. I have no idea. They must be very small people, (laughs) I I guess. I'm not sure how big they are, but it says eight people, in in fact, in this uh, this tiny house. And if you'll sit down on the toilet, you can look down the, the distance of your whole house. (laughs) <laughs> you see the whole thing. You even see that you've got a washing machine and a slop sink. Now, what else could you want for $78,000? Down to 70 today because you're here. Special. <laughs> you and I can talk about that. Now, that's that's an example of less. I mean, <laughs> a, a lot less and might be something you're interested in, but I suspect that not many of us want to Want to trade our apartments or condos or or houses for that. Now don't get me wrong, I want I want to have less. Cause, Cause I know that I know that having more stuff makes me a slave of the stuff that I have. So I've got this intuitive sense of I really need to downsize some and I need to let go of things, but it's it's hard. It's really hard. We had the we had the Lupus Foundation come to our house uh, on Thursday and we waited all day to give them the things that we had collected in terms of clothing that we were going to give to them and it was a wonderful idea and I'm so glad that we could donate that clothing but it was much less than I thought we were going to donate, you know know what I mean? You get the call and you say, oh yeah, I got that and I got that and I got that and you got all kinds of things in your mind that you're gonna give to Lupus Foundation so you can get rid of it and lighten your load but (laughs) I couldn't find much I didn't need you know, and, and I went through my closet, and I said, oh, I don't need that now, but I might need it, I might need it in the fall, and I guess I haven't worn that for a long time, but I might need that, and so, you know, the things that we were willing to let go of, we got together, and we put them out on the front porch like you're supposed to do, uh, but basically, Ilona and I decided that we'll let the kids deal with it after we die, Isn't <laughs> that it, I mean, really, a great solution for me. It's a lot easier than trying to figure out what you don't need in the midst of life. I, I want less, but I want to define less. When the stock market plummets, I want to say, oh, that's, that's enough. I'm retired. That, that's enough. Don't, don't go anymore. So that's the way it is. You, know, you, you want to define what it is that's less and, and, and draw the line where you're comfortable. Well, sometimes we just have to learn to, to live with less, and we've got a hero in the Bible, many heroes I suppose I could point to, but one of them that I, I couldn't help but latch on to today is a man who learned to live with less and to battle with less, fight with less, and come out on the other side learning lessons about uh, when, you know, when less is more, his name is Gideon. And his story comes up in Judges chapter 6, and I just want to get us rolling with that by reading the first six verses. You can see in your own Bible, or you can look on the screen behind me. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. These are not, not good days for the people of Israel. Verse 3, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the other eastern peoples invaded the country. That's like, you know, Connecticut and Pennsylvania and Delaware using our trains to get into New York City. You know something about that, don't you? Yeah. yeah. Tough. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Now, just a little bit of background on this. You remember Moses is the one who took the people of Israel from enslavement in Egypt all the way to the edge of Canaan, but he couldn't finish the job to go into Canaan, so his assistant Joshua took over from there, and Joshua settled the people in the areas where their their groupings should settle, and they made their homes there. But Joshua died like anybody else would after a number of years, and the problem was there was no successor. There was no natural leader. There's no leader assigned by God that the people would accept, and so the people, as the book of Judges says, did what was right in their own eyes, and what was right in their own eyes wasn't the best. They'd do fine for a while, but then they would uh, fall by the wayside in terms of God, and God would bring judgment upon them, sometimes with these other peoples coming in to invade, and they'd cry out to God, and God would send them somebody to lead them to the right path, and that person would be called a judge. And what we've entered into in the book of Judges is obviously Judges. So these people were given to the people of Israel, men and women who would be leaders for the people of Israel, get them for the most part back to the right path. And then when they died, it would go back again to what the people wanted to do and no leadership. And so um, they'd be stuck again. Well, Gideon comes up and he is the fifth judge. He follows a woman named Deborah, who has been extremely great for Israel and has led them in the right path. Now we have this man, Gideon, but Gideon has a lot to learn before he can really take the position of judge. Gideon can be a mighty warrior. That's what God says about him, but he's got to learn some things. So we go back to the scriptures, and if I go to verse 11, it says that the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, uh, that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, excuse the names, but that's the names, historically that's the names, where his son Gideon, there's the name we're looking for, was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, listen to this, mighty warrior, <laughs> mighty warrior. <laughs> now remember where, where do we find Gideon? We find them in a wine press. Now, you probably haven't been in a wine press recently. You've you've used the product from the wine press, but you haven't been in the wine press. You know where a wine press is. It's down, down in a hole, and it's down in a hole, so all the fruit from the, all the juice from the, from the grapes will drain into buckets and other receptacles below that. Do you know where they usually uh, thresh the grain? It, it's up on a hillside, and up on the top of a hill, because when they, when they, Run their, run their product down underneath the sledge and things like that. They throw it up into the air and the shaft, the stuff you don't want to eat, is blown away by the wind. So you want to be on the top of a hillside and the heavier grain will fall down and they'll collect that and they'll go home with it. He should be up on a hillside, but he's not. He's down in a wine press. Why? <laughs> because this mighty warrior is scared to death because the Midianites and others will come in and take the grain from him and from his people. He's a mighty warrior? That's what God says. And he surely treats him like that. In verse 14, we read, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. That's a really neat kind of statement. He's already got the strength. Okay, you go in that strength, he says, and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And here's Gideon's response. This is really kind of formal, but it's the way you might speak to God if you were before God. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it really it's really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. I, I just love the humility that I find in this man, Gideon. He's not puffed up. He knows where he comes from. He knows what his strengths and his weaknesses are. He, he knows what he's like. <laughs> yeah, and, and and he wants assurance. You know, you hear voices. Yeah, you want assurance that the voice is from God before you step out and take a chance. You want to know that this is the right way. And so he calls out to God. He says, God you got to give me some assurance before I step out in this crazy direction you're telling me to go. Everybody has strengths and weaknesses. You have strengths and weaknesses. Sometimes we're so filled with ourselves. I was so filled with myself as a young man. I didn't recognize it then. I didn't think I was, but I look back now and I realize, yeah, I I had it all together (laughs) when I really didn't. Well, this young man is smart enough to know he doesn't have it all together. He's got his weaknesses. You've got your weaknesses, too, as well as your strengths. And the strengths are wonderful, but you've got your weaknesses. If you don't know that already, you're going to learn that. What I find beautiful about this picture is that in spite of our weaknesses and our strengths, God says to us, you could be a mighty warrior. Wouldn't you like to be a mighty warrior with the circumstances that you're facing now? They're heavy. The enemy is large. They're frightening. Wouldn't you like to be able to go forward and say, You know, in the strength of God, I'm a mighty warrior. I really am. And I can do this in his strength. Well, before he really acts on being a mighty warrior, he has to learn something, and so do you, and so do I. He has to learn that Father's in charge. Yeah, you know? You got teenagers. I feel sorry for you. I don't have any teenagers anymore. They're all gone from the home. My grandkids are easy to manage. They're not teenagers either, but you know what it's like. I got a grandson. He's nine years old, and um, it's really interesting. Even at nine years old, he's learning to push back. You know, Push back against mom and dad. Push back against pappy and Grammy. Push back against most people that he's not frightened by. In fact, what I, what, I, what I see is he most pushes back against the people he knows love him because <laughs> he knows they're not going to swat him bad. His teachers, he doesn't push back against them because they don't have the same relationship. But the ones who are closest to him and love him, he's pushing back. And that's what kids do with father. That's what we do with God. Yeah, we push back. You and I, and somewhere along the line, what my grandson has to learn is that dad's in charge, and mom's in charge, and if they're not there, then pappy's in charge, and and Grammy's have to learn that lesson. That's a hard lesson to learn, but somehow have to learn that lesson. By the word, uh, by the way, the word father is just as fresh in our day as the word Yahweh was in the days of Gideon. You may not see this in your Bible, but if you look carefully, when you read from the Old Testament, you'll find that the word Lord is often printed with uh, capital letters. And that's an indication that behind that word uh, in the English, Lord, is the word Yahweh in the Hebrew, and the word Yahweh is the, the significant statement of a relationship between the people of Israel and God Himself. This is This sets them apart. They call their God Yahweh. It is that covenant relationship that was formed between Israel and the God of Israel, that he's going to watch over them and they're going to be, they're going to be his, uh, his, his children, Yahweh. Well, when Jesus uses the word father or the New Testament uses the word father and talks about men and women who come into the reign of Jesus and become his children, that's just as significant in terms of a Greek word uh, translated into Father in the English as Yahweh, the Hebrew word translated into Lord with the capital letters is. In fact, if you wonder about that, you might go to Jesus' words, maybe John 6, I don't know, other places as well, and see that when he uses the word Father, that people are aghast. They can't believe that he'll speak of God like that. It's just too familiar. It's too intimate. It's too close. When he's saying things like Abba, father, or daddy, maybe a good proximate translation of, or or poppy, or whatever you use in in the intimate relationship with your dad from your background, your culture. Well, that's what he's doing here. He uses that word, father, father. And he not only says that he can use that word towards God, but he says that you and I, you and I can use that word father. So that's just as significant as when Gideon speaks of Lord in those capital letters and refers to him the one who is Yahweh. But whether it's father or it's, it's uh, Yahweh, somehow we have to learn who's in charge, and when we become that warrior that he wants us to be, then then we have to learn, and Gideon is learning. The scenes that follow in chapter six, and I won't read all those, so we don't have the time, but you might want to read them another time, uh, show Gideon Tearing down the false uh, God's altar in his home area and, and building another altar to the living God. <laughs> but he does it at night. Yeah, you know why? Scared. Of course, of course he's frightened. Of course he is. That's the humility of this man that's coming through, this hero from the Old Testament. But what's beautiful is that, is that when the people come and say, Who tore down the altar? His earthly father speaks up for him, giving us a picture of the heavenly father who is behind that action and defends him in the midst of that. I I hope if I asked you to do so, and we were in conversation, and I won't ask you, so don't worry about it. You know, I'm not putting anybody in the spot, but I I hope there are times when you can look back and you can say, yeah, you know, I stepped out here and and God just gave me the strength I needed to to do it, to, to step out in that direction. And to do what I needed to do. It's kind of funny. I've got a lot of those examples in my mind, but the one that came back to me was when Ilona and I were going to Pakistan. And if you're from Pakistan, you may understand this. Or if you visited there, uh, we were nervous as could be going to Pakistan. And we'd, we'd been asked to go to speak to a group of missionaries who were there, world partners. And so we were going for that purpose. But as we were in the plane going over, <laughs> no way to turn the plane around, we we got the news that there were rockets being being uh, sent into the embassy compound in Islamabad, uh, the capital of Pakistan. And here we are going there. And everybody has told us, you're crazy to go there. You know, I just felt like we send other people over there and we say, yeah, good to have you there. We're right behind you. Well, how can I say no to going if we send them there? And I cheer them when they go there. So we went ahead and went there. We got into Karachi because that's where the the airport was for us Uh, I got into Karachi and and our pickup wasn't there (laughs) oh man there are swarms of people at two in the morning I just it seemed like thousands of people into my little personal space really close you know and and they're almost all speaking another language and it's hot and you don't know what to do and you send up this prayer to God. You say, oh, God, how are you going to get us out of this? What are you going to do? And I kid you not, this guy came across to us and said, are you okay? And we said, no. <laughs> Does it show? <laughs> you know, no, we're not okay. And he said, uh, what do you need? And we said, our ride's not here. We've waited for a half an hour. He's not here. And we, don't, we have no idea where he lives. He said, do you have a phone number? I said, we've got a phone number, but I don't know how to use the phones. He said, come with me. Or there he would say, come with me. And so we went over and we used the phone. And he gave us the money to use the phone. And then he disappeared. And I swear to you, I think that was an angel. I, I can't prove that, obviously. But I think God was fending for us because we had stepped out in faith uh, in, in a line with his call even though we were nervous, and even though we knew we didn't know what we were doing much of the time, it's just a matter of stepping out and doing the things that he's called us to do. So I hope you've had those kinds of times. Gideon has a lot to learn. He's a mighty warrior right in the beginning. In chapter 6, verse those first few verses, God calls him a mighty warrior. He doesn't feel like a mighty warrior. He's got a lot to learn. We have a lot to learn. Yeah, Gideon can be a mighty warrior. We can be mighty warriors. Gideon has to learn that Yahweh is in charge. You and I have to learn that Father's in charge. But there's a lot more that has to come in Gideon's life, and there may be for you as well. Gideon Gideon has to go through a frightening case of right-sizing. Heard that term before? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You called it downsizing, didn't you? The guys who were in charge of it said it was right-sizing. It felt like downsizing to you. Well, that's what it feels like for Gideon, and Gideon has to go through that. Judges chapter 7, verse 1, it's obvious that God doesn't know anything about the surge. You know the surge in Afghanistan and other places? That's going to bring the victory? Well, he doesn't seem to know anything about that. In fact, God is headed right down the other road with this man, Gideon. Let's go there and see what happens. Chapter 7, verse 1, early in the morning, Jerob that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. (laughs) Oh, there's a welcome word. You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announced to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 20,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. Why? Because God wouldn't share his glory. That's why. Because God has this thing that he's the one who deserves the credit He's the one who deserves the glory and he ain't shared it. So he says, I want all those men gone. Why? So that you, Gideon, and and your men, you won't think, oh man, we got this done Yeah, we took care of that enemy. No, he says, I don't want any of that here. I want you to know that it was the living God carrying forth on his covenant that he's made with his people To take care of them and watch over them. You know, it's much the same when it comes to you and me being in a right relationship with God, forgiveness that comes to us as we trust in Jesus Christ. It's very easy, and maybe you come from a background where this was encouraged, I don't know, but it's very easy to be in a kind of setting where, yeah, man, I did this and I did this and I did this, and well, of course, God forgave me. I didn't have a lot to be forgiven. My wife had a lot more than I did that needed to be forgiven. But, you know, he, he forgave me. Of course he did. But look what I did. That, that's a natural way of thinking, isn't it? God said, no, no. Not going there. You can't go there. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. God doesn't want anybody lining up in heaven and saying, wow, you know, I did this in church and I read my Bible this many times and I, I prayed every day and I I gave little old ladies a walk across the road and so that's why I'm here. No, no, God says, no, that's not why you're here. You're here because you trusted in what I did on Calvary's cross. In fact, Paul is probably, as he's thinking about this, thinking about the words of Jeremiah the prophet who comes from the Old Testament Jeremiah in chapter nine says, this is what the Lord says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. God is is jealous for his glory. He doesn't wanna give it away. He doesn't have to give it away. He's the one who gives life and breath and he's the one who, who gives forgiveness and pardon and salvation. So he says, I'm not sharing that. Gideon and his men have to learn that. So when you get to chapter seven, you go a little bit further and I won't read it all. <laughs> but he, takes, he says, take those 10,000 men, Gideon, and take them down to the water. Here's what I want you to do. I'm gonna thin them out. I'm gonna weed out the ones I don't want to be there. He says, they're going to go down to the water and some of them are going to drink, getting on all fours, put their head down to the water and they're going to drink the water that way. I don't want them. Others are going to take the water in their hands, they're going to bring it up to their mouth and they're going to lap the water like a dog laps the water. They're the men I want. Now you may remember from Sunday school how many did this. 300. 300. The rest, he says disqualified, they're not going into the battle with you, Gideon. Now, you can probably make sense of that. You know, I can. I mean, you put your head down to the water, you don't see what's going on around you. So that makes a lot of sense. You take the water like this and bring it up to your mouth, and you can still watch what's going on. You can see the enemy approaching if he approaches. So so I get that. I understand that. (laughs) But the bottom line is still the same. I mean, it's still 32,000 down to 10,000 down to 300, I'm not good at math, but that's a 99% reduction in troop force. Say, wait a minute, looks like a lot of fun, doesn't it? No, it doesn't look like a lot of fun. And what you're going through right now doesn't have to look like a lot of fun, but it's good, it's good. What God wants to bring out of it is good. It's less, but it's more. You know what I mean? Like 300 is less than (laughs) 32,000. Yeah. But it's more when God's in it. In fact, that brings me to a point where I need to ask the question, when is less more? You're in that spot right now. Okay, when is less more? Or maybe you need to be in that spot when you determine, I don't need that, and I don't need that, and I don't need that. When, wh- wh- what's the basis on which I say, I don't, I don't need that, it would be better if I didn't have that? Let me give you three kinds of questions you can look at, or three kinds of uh, 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 determining qualifications you can look at and see if they might help you when you think this through in the days ahead. I would say that less is more when it's keeping us away from God, when when what I have is keeping me away from the living God. You know, I mean, that's just kind of basic, I guess, but it, it really strikes me as if he's the most important person in my life, then whatever I have, if it is keeping me away from God. And I'm not putting everything on the table and saying everything keeps us away from God, but it has the potential to do that. And we naturally think about material things, and I know I go in that direction too. We think about diamonds and houses and boats and all those things, and that may be what keeps me away from God. But, but it may be more than that. In fact, it may be much more subtle than that. It may be a, a quest after fame or uh, physical abilities or the perfect body or, or the job that's higher up the ladder with the, the corner office. It, whatever it is, It's keeping me away from God. A second question you might ask, is it keeping me away from the people that I need? Or excuse me, that, well, maybe I need them too, but I was really thinking especially, is it keeping me away from the people who need me? And you know what that's like, don't you? I mean, you've only got so much strength, you've only got so much time, and and you fill that time with certain things and you put too many things into the bucket and there's no room for the people. And the people are what you're going to be missing when they're gone, yeah. I've never seen anybody on a deathbed say, boy, I wish I had gotten higher in the company or I wish I had gotten more money or I wish I had gotten that house. Or, No, no, but I have seen people on their deathbed say, boy, I wish I had spent more time with my son. Yeah. I, I, w- I wish I had uh, spent more time with my wife or my husband. I, I wish I'd spent more time with the folks in my community because they needed me and I could have contributed something to their lives. I wish I'd spent more time in my church and, and sharing the good news and the, the skills that I have and nobody else has. I, I wish I'd spent some more time so that I have something lasting. So people come together in, in, in the funeral home for my funeral, they'll be saying, boy, he really struck my life this way or he really touched my life that way or she really made a difference in my life that way. That's what we want, isn't it? well we're going to have to ask that question is what i have keeping me from the people who need me and then the final one i guess is kind of a summary is it is more when we lose uh, when what we lose has become a god for us and you know anything can become a god for me it doesn't have to be something that i see in a statue and it looks like a person or it looks like some kind of living thing Anything can become more, and I guess I touched on that when I talked about jobs and bodybuilding and and all the other things that are naturally part of life, but man, the first commandment is that I shall love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, and all the other ones build on that. If I could get that first one right, then I'd probably get a lot of the other ones right, and then beyond those 10 commandments, I'd get a whole bunch of other things right if I just get that first one right so that God is really God in my life. He's number one. That's when less is more. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite people in my Christian life, he's not here anymore, he's in heaven, is a prisoner with a number 23226. Um, Anybody know the name Chuck Colson? Yeah. He's just one of those guys that stands out for me. I listen every day to the podcast Breakpoint uh, because it carries on the ministry that he had. And in fact, sometimes goes back as it did the other day to one of Chuck Colson's broadcasts. It's just a three minute broadcast. It's worth every three minutes that you can give it. breakpoint.org. Uh, his book is uh, born again. If you want to read a great book from, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years ago, whatever it is, it's still relevant today. It's just a great picture. And, and you may know the name Colson. Uh, what you remember about the Colson is not good because he was the hatchet man in the white house. And, uh, um, he got caught up in the, in the Watergate scandal, and he got sent to jail. But shortly before he went to jail, uh, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, a man challenged him. He'll tell you about it in his in his book, Born Again, and he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. Then he went to jail. You know, doesn't take away the consequences of his actions, but he went to jail as a new man, and he began to learn things in jail so that when he got out of jail, uh, he started... Prison Fellowship and Justice Fellowship. And now the Colson Center has come out of his life. And he has has been responsible for the change in, I don't don't know how many, hundreds of thousands of people's lives, I suspect. But the reason why he's interesting to me is he he had spent the years prior to that time in a personal quest for everything that he could get. Money and fame and power. And he ended up in the White House as the personal assistant to the president. And he was the hatchet man. He could do anything he wanted. Didn't last. But what he found lasted. He he had less, but he had what? What's the word? Yeah, more. Yeah, more. Maybe that's what you need to think about. Maybe there's something in your life right now, and you need to be going through some kind of an inventory. You need to go through the steps and say, yeah, this is in the way. It's in the way of me and my wife. It's in the way of me and my neighbors. It's in the way of me and God. And I can't allow that to happen anymore, so I need to take these steps to move it out to the side where it deserves to be. It's still important, but I can't let it be in the center anymore, because that wouldn't be good for anybody. I, I, I need to end up with the credo that Colson ended up with on, the, on his desk. It was just a wooden plaque, and it came from Mother Teresa and it was faithfulness, not success. You know, faithfulness, not success. But if I'm gonna have that, I'm gonna to have to get some of those things out of the way. So as you go through the week, as you think about these ideas, as you, as you put your head on the pillow tonight, if there's something you need to move to the side or maybe remove completely, I don't know, just move to the side, then uh, say okay, okay. Less is more when it comes to this because what I'm searching after is faithfulness, not success. The band's coming up to sing. (laughs) Let's pray together, please, as they do that. Father God, thank you for the chance to think together, to to toss these ideas around in our minds. I, I know, Lord, that some decisions take time, and I understand that, but there may be others that can be made quickly, can be made even now, Lord. And if that's the case, I would pray, Lord, that uh, men and women would be deciding on that right now and uh, be taking the steps that are necessary after this service is over, just to get it going in the right direction that their lives might count for eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.